HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the New York Women's Culinary Alliance. Meet and Three is back. We're kicking off our fourth season and celebrating HRN's 10th anniversary with a very special episode about our home, Brooklyn. Roberta's was such an interesting place with such a strong gravitational pull and attracted all these different groups. The neighborhood has changed a lot over the past decade from its culinary renaissance to the complicated implications of gentrification. I would say the majority of the people who are members of our co-op definitely have a certain purchasing power, are mostly white, and we are trying to change that. We're taking you on a journey that spans the birthplace of food radio to buzzy neighborhood pollinators to the transformative health journey of our borough president. That was my moment of, you know, wow, someone has thrown me a life raft and I'm going to take it. Subscribe to Meet in 3, that's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, hello. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and we are coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, May 22nd, 2019. This is the 216th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is an award-winning master sommelier and a managing partner at a New York City restaurant in Tribeca, and I will introduce her fully in a moment. First, as I do in every show, I will start out with my PR tip, and then later we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to be a master. Become an expert in your field. Dive deep into what you're passionate about and learn everything there is to know about it. Be the expert. Be the go-to source for information. And have the most knowledge and the person who everyone respects. With hard work and devotion, you can be the master of your domain. That's my tip today. Now, I'm really excited to have my guest here with me in the studio. It is Pascaline Lepeltier. She is the, a master sommelier and the managing partner at Racine's New York. 
Detouring from a master's in philosophy and a career as a university teacher, Pascaline began her obsession with wine at the two-star Michelin-rated Le Auberge Breton. Within a year, she was named both Best Loire Valley Young Sommelier and Best Brittany Sommelier. Pascaline has continued to win accolades over the years. I will name a few. She was named one of the best new U.S. sommeliers of 2011 by Wine and Spirits, a, the, new, the New Profits by Time Out New York, and 40 Under 40 Beverage Influencers by Wine enthousi- Enthusiast. Most recently, she won the MOF, which stands for it's the Best Craftsman of France competition in the sommelier category. She was the only woman nominated and the first woman to win in the sommelier category there. And she just also won Best Sommelier de France at Union de la Sommellerie. I'm apologizing in advance. I don't speak French and I'm butchering all these but let's just get to the show. We're talking to Pascaline. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> I really apologize. <laughs> I'm. I. I did avoid saying um, what M O F stands for because I knew <laughs> I was going to not say it correctly. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a tough one, even yeah. for a French speaker. So don't worry. Well, we'll, we'll <laughs> get worry. to it. But congratulations. Thanks. I mean, so so many accolades, and you're you're so respected in in the industry for for everything you've accomplished and who you are. So I'm honored to have you here. I'm, I'm very honored to be here, so thanks. You're welcome. So let's let's go back to your background because you went from philosophy to wine. Mm-hmm. So where you grew up in France and, and how did you decide to make that transition? In, in, in two words, I grew up in a wine region in the west side of France, the Loire Valley, uh, not at all in a wine family. One was not at all part of our life. Um, um, very lucky to be pretty good at school and um, discover philosophy and totally fell in love for that and uh, went to uh, study philosophy a thousand percent of my time until um, almost being ready to become a philosophy teacher but I was only 21 and um, I got kind of an existential crisis where I understood that understanding concept doesn't really help you to teach and I wanted to take a break and just live life you know what pain or work or means, really mean, you know, mm-hmm. not just playing with, with text. So took a year of a break to work, to know what that means, discover that I didn't know how to do anything with my two hands. So it was <laughs> a very humble experience and working in restaurants uh, and uh, in kind of more like a catering company more exactly. And, and I really enjoyed that ex- experience to serve people with food. And I realized that I really like food. Family was not foodie at all. My mm-hmm. mom still hates cooking, so <laughs> no, no food, but very good product at home. No, no great cooking techniques, but good product. And going on, um, my philosophy teacher uh, that put me into that field was already a wine lover. And when they gave me, a, I was still in touch with him, and he gave me a glass of wine. I was like, well, that spoke to me. And uh, in fact, he, he spoke to me so much that I realized it was going to be my my path as uh, it was an epiphany. It was really simple. And I often do the comparison with music. You know, I, I wanted to be a pianist at one point. I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at piano. I can play hours and it's really, really bad. And I was like, how can you be a musician going to a piano and just play? You know, people have that, that relationship. I got a glass of wine and 
it's, it spoke to me. And then I wanted to get into culinary school, didn't work. I got too many diplomas, didn't want me in. Went back to university, did two MBAs, tried to do internship in wine. At the end, got really a, a glass of amazing wine that just told me, you have to go back to the ground. And I got a very entry-level sommelier diploma. And I was 25. What was the wine? I was um, uh, Ikem 1937. So it's a sweet sauté wine from France, um, direct from the property. And it was an extraordinary experience because I was able to, to taste not only something extraordinarily delicious and complex and very multi-layered in the aromatics and all that, but that experience was also a dilatation of the time. You know, it, it felt like that lasted forever. And I was like, wow, I'm drinking something that is almost like 100 years old. And I can feel the work and the place. And I realized how wine was a transcendental experience. And I could get in wine when I got in philosophy. Yeah, so what led you then from France to the U.S.? And I, and I actually know you came here with, you were at Rouge Tomat, and that was another award-winning New York Times uh, accolade that that um, I remember, and so so what made that what what was what led you here? Um, so when when I got to learn wine, I, I really understood quite quickly I wanted to be um, close to all the world of organic and, and bionic wine, and I really understood the importance of the food system. And so after my first and a half year of being a sommelier, I knew I wanted to be more involved in um, a more progressive restaurant in terms of sustainability. And so I was very, very lucky because I got hired by this restaurant, Rouge Tomate in Paris, thanks to that connection, a friend that knew in my previous restaurant. And they hired me uh, with almost no experience. They wanted somebody with university background and so many background to be able to write uh, a charter for the restaurant opening in New York based on how to eat healthy and how to drink healthy. Uh, and so I was hired at Rouge Tomate Paris, overlooked their program in Brussels, and we're opening our flagship in New York. Was going to be to be a green restaurant certified, a slow food restaurant, where the whole concept was based on how to eat better, not only in terms of taste, in terms of nutrients, but also in terms of sourcing. And it was just matching absolutely my philosophy for wine. So I, we opened to 2008, end of 2008, which, as everybody knows, was a kind of a difficult time for American economy and world economy mm -hmm. in general. And so we had to rethink a bit uh, the structure, and they asked me to come for a couple of months to help the team, and I stayed. So I'm here since almost my 10 years anniversary in two weeks. Did you ever have the desire to move to, to the U.S. or New York, and, and did you think you'd stay? <laughs> <laughs> no, I wanted to move abroad. I wanted to have an, uh, an experience abroad, that's for sure. I was not necessarily thinking about the U.S. It was more the opposite. I was like seeing the U.S. as kind of, wow, this dark evil things kind of. Um, I worked in, in Belgium. I went to London a little bit, just like to check it out. Uh, but the first time I went to New York, I knew I would have something to do in New York. I really love the city and the feel. Um, I like the cosmopolitan of, of aspect of, the, of, of Manhattan and, and Brooklyn and all that. And so it's, it was an evidence that I would have to do something to do to do here. Uh, but it was not never been a goal of mine, dreaming of coming to New York. No. Yeah. Well, you you stayed. You you. You with Rouge Tomat, you were there for for many years as the wine director. Uh, how did you go about putting together their wine list, and 
And then also with natural wines, as was that something that you brought into Rouge Tomat, or did that come later? So no, it was part of the original concept to go with the less processed type of, mm-hmm. of ingredients we're using at the restaurant. So it was part of the idea to do the whole beverage program based on on data and, and, and scientific research that will help to, to create that lease that was good and also sustainable in the broader way. Um, when I arrived, I just didn't know American taste. I didn't know a lot of, Amer- like, even wine. I just knew French wine. So it was a lot of, like... A, a curve of learning for me so I would say I was kind of careful for the first year and then I realized that when you explain to people and when you really give good wine and you listen to your guests whatever they want a Chardonnay or they want when they talk about just a varietal they want a really great Bordeaux let's say if the wine is good they're happy with the right price so I could just find this right good wine made in the right farming and so the wine is just exploded and for me it was absolutely heavy done that it has to be done this way like uh, we are at the end of the food system in a restaurant and I don't conceive myself feeding my guests or having my guests drinking something that can potentially not only hurt them but hurt the whole ecosystem where this food has been produced or this one has been produced so it was it was a no-brainer for me because also at the same time a lot of this wine were coming on the market and they were of extraordinary quality so they were really tasting good so it's was easy, mm-hmm. in fact. And Rouge de Mott then moved. You, were you with them with the relocation down to Chelsea? Yeah, I was. Yeah. And did did any did did the concept change? Did your wine list change at all with with that, or not really? Uh, yeah, the one is changed. You know, I, w- I got even more committed. Like, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like I. You know, I was very. My, my mom has a PhD in, in plant physiology, so I can ask a lot of questions to my mom. I'm a literature background, so my scientific knowledge is not as as deep as I would like it to be. Um, but yeah, I got even more committed about supporting uh, such a certain type of farming that we're confusing a lot today. There is a lot of um, it's, it's a very growing um, segment of the wine world. So the natural, the organic, the biodynamic is like developing, and and sometimes without any meaning anymore. So. We decided to ask for the second iteration of the restaurant, my team. We asked every producer about exactly their techniques and the additives they were using in their wine. So we had data for absolutely everything. The, the first list, we were listing organic or biodynamic or practicing or no next to the wine. On the second one, we did not because we, we thought that people just could come to the restaurant and trust us about the selection. Um, and... I really, one of the big ones, I really tried not to have any herbicides, uh, mm-hmm. uh, farmed wine uh, with all the issue of glyphosate and Roundup, um, not only because of where I think today's product is standing for in terms of like damage on the health, but also because I deeply believe that wine of terroir needs to have a very healthy root system and you can't get it with that product. And healthy root system helps to get better grapes that gets better wines that are more more close to their to their place, so everything was matching. And we also tried to be cheaper in terms of the price. That was very important for me. So to re- have people understand that this type of, of wine are not more expensive. Uh, you can really build a business on how, how they are priced. Right. And this you brought to you then to Racines, which you, when did you join Racines? Um, I joined Racines a little bit more than a year ago. Okay. 
um, thanks to uh, Arnaud Tronche, um, who created yeah. the restaurant, my, my partner, uh, and David Lilly from Chamber Street Wine. And they, like, I wanted to take a break from Rouge, and I didn't really know where I was going to be. And um, they came to me and they are like, you know, we would love for you to join. And um, I know Arnaud has been really, really putting great wine program for, for a long time. And I'm a big uh, admirer of, of David Lilly's work mm-hmm. on the wine scene since more than 25 years with Chambers. Uh, we are sharing a lot of vision similarly. So, and uh, no, it, it, was, it, was a, it was a great opportunity. Yeah, so I was, um, I knew how many bottles of wine you had. It's 2,500. I'm on your website and I'm looking at the list. At first, I was like, oh, I'll print out the wine list. <laughs> and then I, I scrolled down and it's 69 pages. I was like, okay, I'm not going to print this. But I did really, I, lo- I love what, what is written at the top of the list. It says, uh, wine's chosen because of commitment to careful farming and the respect to life and natural biodiversity which is what you've been explaining. Um, I think it's, it's uh, you know, as, as I read this and I, and I know that's, that's your, your approach, I'm still wondering, how do you, how do you get a list of 2,500 bottles of wine? That's a lot of wine. <laughs> and then how do you know when someone comes in and says, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you guide that's them? My, that's how my do you, job. I know, but that's, but that's, that's, you know. Um, it's a lot. Yeah, I don't know how. Yeah, it's so. It's I, I think everybody has as a talent or a gift, and I would say my brain remembers very well wine. Okay, it can be anything. Like, give ask me about question about uh, Oscar winners or like like football games and all that. I'm I'm, right. I'm miserable, but wine is just sticking out. And then, you know, I've been now it's been almost well 13, 40 years being in wine business and and tasting wine every day between probably forty to hundred wines every day. When I'm on, on working, so you 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 build a database, uh, and then the most important is to really carefully listen to your guests. the The deal is not trying to put on push on somebody uh, what you believe is good. Uh, is really to to pay attention to the the moment, to the level of attention your guest wants to have. So sometimes you just don't want to think about at all what you're gonna drink. You just want to be with your friends, partner, you just want to have a great time. Mm-hmm. Uh, or sometimes you really want to dig into to have a food and one experience. Or sometimes you are like more in a representation stuff with business partners. So you, you really need to understand the scope of your guest. And from that, my whole goal is to interpret what you are telling me. So I'm more a, a language specialist because I need to translate the sensation and a, and a taste that you are talking me about with usually a vocabulary that is very, very simple. And sometimes my guests almost feel like a shame. They can't really say what they like. And I need to interpret that and to give it back to them in, in a form of, of a bottle of wine. So it's, it's very interesting to, to, uh, to do. Uh, the, the, the more I get older, I think the, <laughs> the, the, more, the more fun I have with that. Uh, <laughs> and then it's just matching. And then when you tell me what you like, I have kind of the database of wine. I'm like... Yes, 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 yes. And I will match if you, the, your price point and your desire to experiment and, of course, the food you have, and I will match everything. And at the end, I probably have 20 options, and then I will probably pick one or two that I think are tasting perfectly well right now. So I always, always recommend a wine that I will myself drink. That's my... Uh, if I was you, if I wanted to drink that Malbec or if I wanted to drink an aged Barolo, I wanted to drink a Chenin, whatever... 
I will always give you what I want to drink so I can stand behind what I'm talking about. I, I'm, I'm, I'm in awe listening to you and watching you because I'm thinking I, wanna, I, w- I would want to go into every restaurant <laughs> and have you come over to the table. And, and yeah, no, I get the background and, and your approach. is it's, it's, it, it obviously works. And it's, uh, I, think, I think people um, you know, treasure, treasure having you and guide them. So it's good. It's, you know, it's very, I, I think it's, it, our job is very simple. Yeah. Uh, we do it on a very big wine list because we can. I can on a simple one, but um, we are really in a, in a, we always say about we are in the business of hospitality and taking care of the guests. And like, uh, it's so true and it's not very complicated to do. You just need to sincerely listen to the person in front of you. That's that's simple. Right. To really do that and then just have a trustful relationship because everything we are doing is based on trust um, and that how do I have somebody that I never met that we have like a 35 seconds interaction how can I have that person trust me right uh, and sincerely trust me and not for the one shot so, you know my goal is to have people coming back to my restaurant I want people to I want to start to know them and to become regulars and to recognize them to build a relationship so how do you want? How do you create that? One way, you just have to be sincere. That's it. If you are starting with your oh, I need to get 110 bucks per person in my, re-, it won't work. It won't work. Maybe it's maybe it's going to be a 60 dollar check. Maybe it's going to be a 12 dollar check. What, what we don't care about yeah. that. We care about building that that trust relationship where that yeah. it can be for the long term. I'm going for the long term. I'm not doing for the one shot. Yeah. I, I love it. And you're, you recently, or Racine's recently brought in Diego Moya as the new chef, chef de cuisine. Yeah. And I'm a fan of his from Hemlock and, and Casamono. And I went the other night and it was, you were, I missed you that night, but uh, his food's fabulous. How are you working with him on, on, is there a coordination between food and beverage pairings? So we don't we don't have yet like a kind of a tasting menu mm-hmm. things. Um, so at first I'm I'm super really happy to work with Diego. Um, he's really going back to what I thought is important food wise. Uh, and I think we we both have the same vision of what matters in th- in that industry. What does it mean to feed people? How do we source? Who are we working with? We want to support in terms of, of farmers or winemakers. Um, then Diego loves wine which makes a big difference, and he drinks wine. So his food, I know he has some wine in mind when he creates a dish. Um, So we we haven't been working yet on that kind of perfect matching pairing because we don't do pairing, but now after five months working with him, I have kind of a pretty good idea of of the structure of how he works, how he builds his dishes, uh, what he's he's using in terms of, of ingredients and... It's a, a lot of vegetable, and I was working already with a lot of vegetable at Rouge, and it's something I love to do. I like this idea of the vegetal. Um, I think wine today is fought mostly with fruit, and we forgot that it comes from a plant. And I think the greatest, more enjoyable wine is where you still feel the plant in a very savory way. I don't think about green. I think about really that vegetal feel, that sap going through the wine. And I'm looking for this type of wine to go with this food because the match is there 
Um, no, and it's been, you know, he has been really putting so much work and the level of the food today within four months is, I think, extraordinary. Yeah. Um, and we are really looking forward to the next, like, month now that kind of the operational side, because there is, you know, there is a dream and blah, 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 but there is operational to, to make happen. So I think now we are getting more and more structured. And I can, like, I'm very excited for what's going to happen in the next month because we are going to really start to put way more, way more in the collaboration between food, wine, and beverage. Uh, I'm excited for that too, and I know he's 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 very new, uh, so um, stay tuned for that to see what you guys do next. Okay, we're gonna take a little break here. We're gonna come back and talk more with Pascaline. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by the New York Women's Culinary Alliance, a vibrant and supportive community of professional women who work in all areas of the food, beverage, and hospitality worlds, and come together to network, learn, and share their passion. Membership is only open once a year, every spring, so now is the time to join. The deadline is Friday, May 31st. Visit nywca.org for more details. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Pascaline Lepetier. She is the Master Sommelier and Managing Partner at Racine's New York. I should say just a Master Sommelier, which we should get into, because I want to find out with all these awards and accolades, um, when did you, what inspired you to want to become a Master Sommelier? I mean, there's a, there's a lot of studying, I mean, that's an understatement that goes into passing this, and there's so few people that that are masters. So so what inspired you to do that, and then what was your what was your process like in studying? So when I arrived, I have no idea about what was a master sommelier <laughs> uh, in, in the U.S., and I knew pretty quickly I wanted to stay. So uh, uh, the lawyer of my company told me I should get a, American diploma will help me to get my, my visa. Uh, and so uh, I met Laura Maniak, who was just got the title of Master Sommelier. We became really good friend, like just friend. And she's like, you should just try to go for the MS. <laughs> and I'm like, what is that? And she said, oh, this is like an American certification. I said, okay, send me on. <laughs> and I signed on. Sign on for that. And I had no idea. Really? Uh, no. And I, so my, I am very ashamed, but like my very first motivation was to get a diploma for my visa. Um, and then, as I told you, I arrived here and I was like, well, I'm from France. Like, I uh, I know everything about wine. And then you realize you don't know anything about wine because <laughs> there is France and there is all these other countries that happen to make wine. 
And so I used, uh, I started to do like the intro and certify, I got that very quickly. And then um, I realized I can use the Master Sommelier to rebuild my knowledge of all these other country. countries, sorry, I didn't, I didn't know about. Uh, and I was at the same time developing Rouge Tom at least. So um, I, I like the idea of learning something that could be applicable. And so I just started to study for it. And I you know I, I studied a lot in France philosophy at a pretty high level. I went to very, very intensive school. I did tennis in competition. So I like this idea of pushing yourself. But with the idea, once again, um, that it needed to be applicable for my daily job. Uh, so went for it and uh, it worked. <laughs> well, as you said, you have you have an incredible memory and your encyclopedia of knowledge that you can retain, which obviously uh, is a great skill to have to be able to to pass these these exams. Because I know I know many people that have or are studying, and you know they there's three parts, and they they maybe pass two, but they don't get the third. But it's it's hard. No, it's hard, but. I think one of the problems for this kind of, like, and I can say that because I went for more examination after that, it's, and I really like this idea of what does it mean to master something? Um, and I like the, the word comprehension. Um, mm -hmm. I like the etymology come from the Latin, comprendere, which means text with you. So I think you, I saw it as I, I don't want to just pass an exam. I don't care about passing the exam. I care about understanding something. I care about learning something and really trying to understand it so this way it can be useful. And and I think it was the same thing for the blind testing and it was the same thing for service. Like I, I didn't try to be good at service for 30 minutes in my life. I just want to be good at service right. all the time. So you went and every night it's like, okay, I'm preparing for an examination. So every night you try to go and do the motion and, and try to really make a good service every night. Blind testing, I really tried. I was like, what that one wants to tell me? What can I get out of this wine? And why is it important for me to try to understand that? Why? Because if tomorrow I don't see any more labels, I can probably pick up quality and where I'm standing as a, as a tester in my professional job. So my only advice if you go for this kind of thing is you have to make it part of yourself. It has to become a way of thinking. It has to become a knowledge you can teach. And um, I didn't pass theory, so I, it took me two attempts to pass the MS, got service and testing first, and I missed theory, which was very strange because theory is my strong point. And for the year going to my second take on theory, I realized the best way for me to learn theory was to teach, to see if I really understood. So I put classes for all my staff. We had weekly classes, and I was teaching them what I learned. And if I didn't know how to explain it to somebody, I didn't know. And and that is how I think is why this exam are really everybody talks about the journey, but yes, it's about understanding a knowledge. Otherwise you will forget that overnight and there will be no point on getting that title after your name. Right. It's different than the let's cram for an exam and forget it tomorrow. It's putting a yeah, making it a part of your life, retaining the knowledge. It's smart that you teaching the classes and like really incorporating the education you're getting and the studying into your your day-to-day -day life and i'm assuming this this curiosity and this this drive to for knowledge is just um what led you to more competitions or is i mean is that correct because i'm not really familiar with this these the ones you've you've recently uh been awarded the mof but 
is that what's and what's the process like in in qualifying for it so yeah mof was a something i wanted to achieve one day in my life my career as a sommelier so it's an extraordinary diploma in france uh extraordinary not because it's rare but because it's it's very great initiative it was created in the 1920s by a journalist to promote craft and field that was not perfectly represented at the highest level and not recognized uh it was about sewer and less less uh, technician or uh, glass stainer carpenter all the craft that were dismissed because you know it's not like make doesn't make you a very wealthy person necessarily and you know it's not overly intellectual it's really something you with your hand and so they created that in 1924-1929 and today it's more than 200 different fields when you are recognizing the craft in your hand and the idea is you are at a such a level of excellence that you can realize a masterpiece and you are also able to transmit and to teach and to mentor so it's a tribute to tradition and a forcing of the future And um, you probably know some of the things because the chef, the cooks have it. So Monsieur Paul Bocuse had it, Joël Robuchon had it, oh. uh, Monsieur Ducasse is an honoris causa. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of, it's, it's a graph for the French chef, for the pastry chef, for the uh, fishmonger, for the, for the butcher. Like it's really, and so Somalik was created in, the, in 2000. And um, I knew it was at the point of my career when I was managing more and more. I was also a lot in the U.S. and I was losing track to what kind of my culture and my background. And to prepare them off, it's not only about wine, it's about culture. So I had, when I decided to go back, it was because I wanted to read again about gastronomy and aesthetics and art and culinary art and glassware and everything surrounding my profession to, to, to feed myself from that, to remaster this craft and to see if I was able to transmit it to my staff or to my students. And so I went and it was at the same time than the best French sommelier competition, which is more like a classic competition of sommelier when it's really about wine, 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 like blind tasting and all that. And they decided to do them side by side because the best French was a, a training practice for me, for the MOF. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was very lucky because I, I got both. <laughs> It's uh, amazing. And, uh, and we are like, last week I was in France and it was very special because last week finally you get the title so you can wear the uniform. We have the color with the French color. You have the medal. And it was at the Sorbonne. So we were like uh, more than 190 people with the oldest getting the MOF was 86 years old. Oh, wow. She was a, 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 she was a specialist in lace. And we're at the Sorbonne at university. So like most of us, most of them didn't do university study. I was one of the few. And it was just extraordinary to be recognized at excellence in your craft under that that extraordinary, uh, like the Sorbonne is magical. And then when to be received at the Elysee with a president and the president gives some middle, like it's it's a big deal in France. It's really a big deal. And it's, uh, but it's really about saying you, everybody has a talent uh, and that talent may be in a field that today doesn't look like cool or where you make a lot of money, it's not the tech and all that, but is absolutely necessary and needed. And yeah. if you excel, you will, you will get something out of that. And so it's an alternative way for studying. It's going to fund a lot of school for, if you're not good at school, you can go to school where you become an apprentice and you have like part-time things. It's so important to diversify your education system today. And that diploma for me was crucial for that. I'm, I'm so proud to be an, an MOF. You should be. And congratulations. It's, it's, it's 
extraordinary. I will say, it's it's really it's really quite an accomplishment. All of these are quite accomplishments. I can't even I can't even too much. Let me let's ask my question from uh, my guest in episode two fifteen. I had on Brett Martin. He is food critic and correspondent for GQ magazine. He has a question for you. We're gonna play it back. I would like uh, to ask Pascaline. I know Pascaline was also a philosophy uh, student, and I would like to know which philosopher she would most like to drink with, and uh, and not just to meet, but also who would be a really good drinker. <laughs> ah la 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 la! That's a great question. Um, oh, a lot of the philosophers are not great drinker. Um, uh, and one, I think one of the ones I want to drink with had a problem with alcohol, so I'm. A, um, I I uh, I think I would like to drink with somebody that I'm not sure uh, American public is familiar with. I would hope so. It's like his name is Gilles Deleuze. Um, he's a philosopher from the post-war, from the 60s, 70s. Was very important uh, in France. Um, and Deleuze was um, a brilliant philosopher per se. Where one of the ones that I read very early on. Um, I was fascinated when he said philosophy is really about creating concepts um, and I, I really like this idea of creating ideas uh, that we are we are just most of the time stripped into our, our, our field of words or concepts and we can't see how life around us which is full of indetermination and quality can be can, can, can be interpreted and, uh, and he was also a fantastic reader and so he, he helped me a lot to understand other philosophers like Kant or Nietzsche or Bergson. And he was an amazing teacher. And he did extraordinary classes post-1968 when he was like all the French, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, kind of revolution, second revolution in a way. And I o- always admire um, this ability to be so brilliant and able to simplify and make knowledge accessible. And... I just would love. I would have loved, loved to hang out with him. <laughs> That's for sure, uh, Dolores. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. I wish I could make it happen. <laughs> okay, we're gonna take another break. We're gonna come back. We'll play my speed round game and talk some industry news. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty. My name is Korsha Wilson, and I'm the host of A Hungry Society here on HRN. A Hungry Society focuses on highlighting dope people doing amazing work in food, and we talk about how we can make the culinary world a more diverse and inclusive space. You can join the conversation by checking out A Hungry Society wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Pascaline Lepetier. We are going to play my speed round game. So what this is, is I name a couple of things and you get to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. Okay. That's... <laughs> can, I, can I pick something else? No, it has to be one of the two. <laughs> well, it's, how, it's however you play the game is up to you. And um, everyone plays differently. So okay. there are really no rules. So uh, I look forward to seeing how you play. Let's let's go. Eat in or eat out. 
half and half. It's in <laughs> half and half. Yeah. Wine, beer, cocktail, or mocktail? Um, wine at work, beer at home. Wow. <laughs> I thought that was the easiest one in the whole game. <laughs> I love it. Okay. How about tasting menu or a la carte? Um, tasting. Tasting menu. Tasting if, menu. Yeah, if I go somewhere, I, I like the chef to cook and show yeah. me what he can do. Small plates or large plates? Small plate in America and large plate in France. That's a first. (laughs) That's fabulous. Communal table or chef's counter? Um, Communal table. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? The future belongs to all-inclusive. Aha. (laughs) Red, white, pink, or orange? All the color of the rainbow. <laughs> I don't know if I should pink. I was think, referring. Well, you know, we'll <laughs> see. We'll leave it. Okay. Theory, tasting, or service? There is no good service without good tasting. There is no good tasting without good theory. You have a great answer for everything. <laughs> <laughs> Two more cheese plate or dessert? Okay, I hate cheese. I, I, I hate cheese. I can't eat cheese, really. From France? Yeah, what? It needs to be really... With wine? Yeah, Ama- so Who knew? Yeah, a very, very... Okay, extra-aged Conte 48 months. Yeah, okay. I can do that with a bottle of vin jaune. Or else you're going to go dessert. Yeah. Okay. Last one, Manhattan or Brooklyn? Oh, I never live in Brooklyn, so I would love to live in Brooklyn one day. Okay. Yeah. There you go. We'll see you in Brooklyn. <laughs> so that's the game. And then for industry news, I always find the timing of things to be to be so serendipitous, I guess I'd say. So on Eater this week, there was an article entitled, New York City's top natural wine destinations are now making their own. Restaurants like Franchette are getting in on the wine game by creating their own custom blends. This was by Stephanie Tudor. So he's talking about the Frenchette and the Four Horsemen and the Riddler that's coming here and that um, starting to do the, pour their do their own their own wine. Um, how do you how do you feel about this? I mean, these are these are your these are your friends. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, in fact, I love them. I have to say, and I'm so glad I'm I work very close from Frenchette, <laughs> and I'm so sad I live so far away from Four Horsemen. <laughs> Um, so what do I think? Um, but it's, it's good. Um, it's good. Uh, in fact, uh, I did it at Rouge. Uh, we had our, we had our, our wine at Rouge. Um, the only thing is the way we did it at Rouge uh, for the second iteration was a little bit different. I wanted to partner with a winemaker that was left with some wine. So instead of asking, and that is something that came from a, a dear friend, Will Horowitz, that has a place called Harris and he does. And uh, his way of thinking about food really resonated in me and that just in two, two seconds he one of he created that restaurant called Duck Sitter in his village and he, he became famous for a dish called with a goat neck and the idea was to go to farmers and to use what they were not able to sell or to valorize and so I, I was wow I know that there is sometimes and more often than we think some winemakers that are left out with some end of a tank you know it's just stupid but you can't fill up your tank 
mm-hmm. all the way through the blend doesn't work anymore so they are left out with some stuff and so for the reopening of Rouge we went to the south of France and I partnered with a gentleman called Jeff Coutelou and I said Jeff if you happen to have some wine that you can't can't bottle in a certain type of cuvees would you be interested for, for me to, to get some and to bottle it for the restaurant so the le- it's more like kind of I wouldn't say leftover, but what could not fit. And so we did a blend at low price for the restaurant. And so I'm totally about this custom stuff, but I think we should be part of this idea that instead of forcing something on the production, we should help the production to valorize things that otherwise we may be not used at the right price point or will be discarded. So... Um, I'm all about this kind of thing, especially with the power. We can use our brand and our name to do that, but it has to become, yeah, the movement has to come from the production side. We can't ask to produce something new. It has to come from something that is not necessarily going to be usable or, or in that. So right. it's, it's a different dynamic of the economy that I think matters more in that kind of thing and not an ego trip. Yeah, no, I'm I'm I think it sounds great. I'm excited for it. I think the different restaurants they talked about uh like Frenchette, which their wine's called Et, like the end of Frenchette. Um they said they're uh they're going to have 600 bottles and then once it's gone, it's gone. Like they're not versus Jen Pelka, the Riddler, I think said that she's looking to make a brand and like really keep marketing this and and moving forward. So Yeah, absolutely. I think the guy of Frenchette and even that what what Jeff really um, did and Jorge and the whole team. Yeah, it's a way more holistic approach. I think they've been so long in the business and they really know um, the importance of what they are doing for the whole chain. And that's really really um, important to have so, so these people with that such great ambassador. Yeah, uh, it's undeniable. And I think they are showing a certain way. And we have to to do that. We have to. We have such a part to play today, uh, us restaurants, just because we're out, we have visible, we have series, we have media paying attention to what we're doing. We have to use that to really help to change the food system. Uh, it's just can't continue to work. And it's not being catastrophic, and, and it can be really, really bright and tasty and... and and positive for everybody, but we need to show it's possible. We need to, we, it's yeah. it's so crucial. And it's getting more and more important every single day passing by. Yeah, I agree. We have to take another break, but I just also wanted to mention, you have a natural wine of your own. Am I going to, Chapica? Mm-hmm. I say that right? Yep. I got something. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's from, uh, it's from an, an old, uh, it's from the Delaware language. Um, yeah, so it's not really a, that's more a political project. Okay. Fact, okay. That we have, like it's political and of course it's a wine, but the idea was uh, when I was looking for organically certified wine from the New York area, I couldn't find anything for Rouge. Um, and then I met Nathan Kendall, a very talented producer from the Finger Lakes, and together we decided what about trying to work with um, original hybrids from the 19th century. Um, so this we call hybrids when two species are crossed, so American species crossed with European species of vine, when people didn't understand what phylloxera and disease were about and die, like vine was, were dying. So basically, we, some grapes came out of that hybridation. One of them is called Catoba, the other one is called Delaware. 
and they require way less pesticide treatments. They grow very, very well, especially the finger licks. And we found some that were organically certified since 1971, and we thought that this vineyard is probably 100 years old. And historically, finger licks industry of wine is from the 1840s, and they were making sparkling wine from these grapes because they are very high acid grapes when you pick them early. And so the idea was to say, we are trying to push the culture of vinifera in the Finger Lakes, and there is a pertinence to that because it's an area that new wild grape since forever, but it's very expensive and it's very demanding. And today it's complicated to be organic or biodynamic. But we have all these original hybrids that we almost call natives that are growing super well. So what about trying to get with organic one and to make a wine that is tasty and delicious and is suited to the profile of these grapes in terms of aromas and structure, and to try to say, okay, what about having a, 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 an industry that can do both? You can do this more simple wine with hybrids because they are more pungent in terms of their taste, and more terroir-driven wine with the vinifera. And so Chepica is almost no bottle, but it's all about that. It's about reconsidering what grows where and realizing that instead of forcing a new species somewhere, if you really craft what grows well, per se, in the area, and if you really care for it, you can grow something very unique and sustainable for the long run without having to use any chemicals and synthetic product. And it's what we try to do. So we make no wines this year. We made 50 cases. You know, we, it's not, we don't make any money. Yeah. It's not at all about that. It's about, about alternative in how we are eating and feeding yourself. And that's the Chepica project. Um, and it, you know, I was in London to talk about it last week, and, and it was really, really successful, especially we're really talking about hybrids right now and what are the new plant species for the future with climate change and all that. We have a lot of solutions already just around us. We just need to observe nature. We have the solution, and it's not that complicated. We just need to switch our spam of attention so that's the chicken yeah, that's what we're doing. And yeah. because they grow well, we don't need to put any sulfur and no yeast, and... Nature does it feel very well by yourself. Right. So it's what we did. Amazing. I'm glad we got that onto the show. Okay, we're going to take one more break. We're going to come back. We're going to do my solo dining experience, and we'll have the final question. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It's time for my silly dining experience. So this week, I'm flashing back a little bit to an experience I had in Macau because I realized I didn't talk about anything from that when I was there back in December. So here's the rundown. The, the restaurant is called The Eight Restaurant. The location, Grand Lisbo Hotel, 2F Avenue de Lisbo in Macau, China. The concept, an upscale Cantonese and dim sum restaurant offering 40 kinds of dim sum, plus they have a phenomenal wine cellar of over 17,000 labels. The chef is Joseph Tsi. So why did I go? 
because I was in Macau and this is a three Michelin star restaurant and I heard from some of my industry friends that it was fantastic and really one of their favorite restaurants in the world. My experience. So I was in Maca- I was in Hong Kong and I took a day trip to Macau. In the morning I actually stopped and had some Portuguese egg tarts at this Marguerite's Cafe Enada, which was nearby the hotel I was going to, and then I went for lunch. And it's in this grand casino. I mean, Macau is is pretty much envision envision Vegas, but you're in China. Lots of big hotels, uh, lots of big hotel casinos, I should say. So I I went into the re- the hotel. I went upstairs to the restaurant, and it's a beautiful dining room. Uh, I was seated at a two top and uh, enjoyed a really fabulous lunch with exceptional service. So what did I get? So since they're known for dim sum, that's what I went with. Uh, Items I had included steamed dumplings with crystal blue shrimp in goldfish shape, pan-fried superior bird's nest with crab meat in pepa style, and puff pastry filled with shrimp in a purse shape, plus I also had barbecue pork buns. My take. So let me tell you about this. It's exquisite dim sum, like nothing I've ever seen before. So those barbecue pork buns, they resembled these adorable little hedgehogs. Like it's, it's, you didn't, you didn't want to eat the food. It looked so beautiful, but it was also delicious. The little purses looked like little purses, too precious. Um, the, the goldfish, uh, the dumplings, the skin was shaped like goldfish. So it's something with this, this presentation that definitely plays, plays into why it's, it's so well, well regarded as a restaurant. The ambiance. So it's an elegant dining room. Uh, you enter through this long, dark hallway, and then doors slide open, almost like you're going on to Iron Chef. Actually, it makes me think of that TV show. Um, and then you enter this dining room, and it's 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 very sophisticated, but it has symbolism, uh, Chinese symbolism woven throughout. They have the number eight, which is a symbol of good fortune, to swimming goldfish, which is a symbol of health and vitality, that are all decorated in the space. I'd say it's perfect for an elegant Chinese meal with a spectacular dim sum experience. Uh, interesting tidbit. So the eight is the first and only Chinese restaurant in Macau, awarded three Michelin stars for six consecutive years. Now it's one of three, three Michelin stars in Macau. Personal fun fact. So after lunch, I stopped by another place for Portuguese egg tarts called Lord Stowe's because I had to try it. And then I went and saw a show. I saw the House of Dancing Water at the city of dreams which actually my brother-in-law had helped produce many years ago so that was cool and then afterward i hit the other three michelin star restaurant on the island because of course that's what i would do uh the restaurant's called jade dragon and it's a new three michelin uh, star restaurant there and it's in the hotel city of dreams so it was yes an epic day the cost of my lunch was 64 dollars. i didn't go too crazy on that but i thought that was a good price would I go back? Yes, if I'm ever in Macau, who knows? I would go back. And their website is GrandLisboaHotels.com. Have you heard of this place, Pascaline? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm not. Um, I'm not up to date with what's happening in Macau right now. <laughs> yeah, as as I I thought you would be, but um, now I am, so <laughs> I can fill you thanks, in. Apparently, for the tip. apparently they have a, a nice wine list. Okay, my final question to ask you is for the final question. 
So my next guest is Tanya Steele. She's the executive director of IACP, the International Association of Culinary Professionals. Pascaline, what would you like to ask Tanya? Um, I would ask her how uh, today we can continue the education of food and wine professional in terms of the new challenges we are facing in our food system. How do we provide the understanding of the quality of nutrients our ingredients needs to have in order not only to make tasty food, but better food? And how is she going to work with the chef around to make that happen? Great question. I will find out. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you for coming on my show. It was a pleasure for me. I am so much more knowledgeable now from listening to, to everything everything you um, shared with us. And I look forward to visiting you at Please. Racine's. And congratulations on <laughs> everything. Thanks a lot. Looking forward to have you. Ah, thank you. My guest today has been Pascaline Lepetier. She is a master sommelier and the managing partner at Racine's New York. And I need to say, she's a fellow dom. Le Dom de Scoffier, give them a shout out. So, uh, yes, I look forward to seeing you at future Dom events as well. Thank you. (laughs) You could find out more information about her on their website, racinesny.com. Follow her at Pascaline Le Petier and at racines underscore New York, or that's NY. You can follow me at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, and at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry, and my website's BayerPublicRelations.com and SherryBayer.com. All of our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify, so you can find us anywhere. Thanks to my engineer today, Matt, and thanks again to Pascaline. I'm uh, off for two weeks now, so my next live show will be on Wednesday, June 12th at 4 p.m. I hope you'll tune in then. And thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, And to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the food world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.